In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Samson eyes a beautiful Philistine girl and asks his parents to arrange his marriage to her. They're not too keen on the arrangement, but they proceed with caution. Meanwhile, Samson demonstrates his holy strength against a lion and later eats honey from the lion's carcass. <laughs> Evidently, he found this amusing enough to pose it as a riddle to his Philistinian wedding guests. When they cannot answer, well, they compel Samson's new bride to extract from him the answer, and this results in the death of 30 men and Samson's new wife being given to another. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Monday, April 17th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. As always, Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Next time you're online, head over to lhfmissions.org to learn more about their publishing and translating work. Find out all the ways they help ministries succeed in spreading the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. They also have mission speakers that will come and talk to your congregation, so check them out at lhfmissions.org. Well, today is a slightly unusual episode in that as we head into Judges chapter 14, I'm without a guest, so it's just me, folks. But that's okay, we'll have some fun digging into God's Word and exploring what there is to learn from Samson and his, well, let's say, complicated wedding to his new bride. But before we dig in, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you great praise and thanks that we are able to gather around your word this morning to hear of the mighty and true story of the Judge Samson. As we explore this chapter, remind us that with the sole exception of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are all sinners in need of salvation. Samson, the subject of our study, is also a sinner. So teach us this lesson that you are a God who does great things even through sinners like us. And of course, this Easter tide, may we appreciate anew the salvation you secured for us through the blood of your Son, Jesus, our heavenly judge, who saves us from our sins. Amen. Well, on Friday, when we last gathered together, we were introduced to Samson. And what's interesting about Samson is that not only is he the last judge featured in the book of Judges, but he's also the only judge whose arrival comes with an auspicious nativity narrative. Uh, unlike the other rescuers, redeemers that we've already heard about, like Deborah and Gideon or Jephthah, Samson ends up battling the enemies of the Israelites single-handedly, in this case, the Philistines. And so the nativity of this great judge of Israel uh, we hear at the very beginning of chapter 13, well, actually the entirety of chapter 13, and it really shares more than a passing resemblance, I think anyway, to the nativity of our Lord. We're presented with a man, Manoah, and his wife, who is barren. And although the Blessed Virgin wasn't barren, we still have, what, two women who we do not expect to become pregnant. An angel appears to both. Gabriel to Mary, but here we have the angel of the Lord, generally understood to be the pre-incarnate Christ, appearing to Manoah's wife. And both angels say, essentially, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And although in very different ways, the sons to be bore 
would be set apart or holy to the Lord. In Samson's case, he is to take a Nazarite vow. Now, this vow harkens back to Numbers chapter 6, and it's, it's basically a promise or a consecration to God to behave differently than the rest of the people. And usually it's a voluntary vow and, and a temporary one at that, but here God imposes this onto Samson's mother. And Samson then is also to be a Nazarite his whole life long. As a Nazarite, now that's not to be confused with a Nazarene, which is just someone from Nazareth, as our Lord was, but as a Nazarite, he would have to do things like abstain from wine or, quote, the fruit of the vine. He would have to refrain from cutting his hair, and particularly, as it applies to our story today, he has to avoid dead corpses. But, but really, people, though, uh, even family members, but it's the, it's the bodies of dead people that comes into question later on. So Samson's parents and the readers of Judges now know that this judge, Samson, is to be something special. Now, I already mentioned that he would be taking on the Philistines by himself rather than, like, leading an army. But spoiler alert, <laughs> Samson ends up being a tragic figure, too. Like many who are thrust into the spotlight or from whom so much is expected, he gives into his sinful nature, time. Still, Samson's nativity ends with these verses from chapter 13. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Menedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, I think it's interesting here that we're given a particular place where Yahweh evidently begins to direct Samson and imbue him with the power that he's known for, in particular his great strength. He tells us which city it is. So I don't think that there are going to be any stories of Samson as a young kid having these great feats of strength. In my mind, we're told that while he's set apart and he's following his Nazarite vows growing up, it is now as he becomes an adult that God begins to stir within him. Now, I have to say, whenever I think of someone with great strength, I cannot help but think about my now sainted friend who went to the seminary with me. Shortly after he graduated and was ordained, he had an untimely death. He's now with the Lord. But uh, he was a strong guy, big, strong guy, tough guy. Um, but he was also extremely kind, obviously, and he cared about people deeply. And so we used to talk at Sam, and one of the things that he said that was problematic with him being sort of a visibly strong guy is that whenever he would go to like a bar or out with friends, especially as a younger man, um, his not as strong friends would be emboldened merely by his presence to go start fights. They would think, well, we got this guy with us. We're going to, we can start fights and he'll help finish them for us. And so he would tell me a number of times or he'd have to carry friends out over his shoulder because they would be emboldened because of his strength. <laughs> well, as we read Samson, he wasn't like my friend. It becomes clear early on that he was quick to use his strength whenever the opportunity arose. I mean, he may had his prowess and a very strong, uh, I guess, uh, sense of, of wanting to uh, defend himself and defend others. But his character was pretty weak, to be honest. So turning to our text this morning, 
finally, right? Let's read chapter 14, but just the first three verses. And this is going to be from the English Standard Version. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up, and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson is now clearly a grown man. And he's heading down to his hometown, actually, of Timnah. That's where he sees this woman near the town of Zorah. We already learned about that. And there's a couple of things that we can take from this. First of all, he finds or he sees this beautiful daughter of the Philistines. Now, I I guess I'm the one adding the adjective beautiful, but that seems like the natural justification for why he would want to take as his wife one of the Philistine women. And what it also tells us is if he's going to his hometown of Timnah and there are Philistines there and Philistine women there, that clearly the Philistines are occupying the city. So these are the enemies of the Israelites, and they are occupying, well, territory that has been given to the Israelites by God. Now let's talk about the Philistines just for a second, though. Now the Philistines were people who lived in Greece and Asia Minor and the Aegean Islands, and as they, I guess, invaded really across the eastern Mediterranean coast That's how they would start to encounter people like the Israelites and try to take over their territories. Uh, At the same time, chronologically, they were the adversaries for the Israelites. Uh, They were also trying to settle along the Egyptian coast. But interestingly enough, Ramses III got rid of them pretty readily. Uh, So still, we have the Philistines occupying this territory. They're at enmity with the Israelites. The Philistines also, as we've seen with other tribes around Israelites, are more technologically advanced. They're working with iron. They're able to make chariots. Um, And so that sort of thing made them a formidable force to be reckoned with and probably why they were in control. The other problem, besides them just being invaders and conquerors, is that they were what we would call pagans. They would have worshipped the god Dagon. Now, Dagon, if you're keeping score at home, is the father of Baal. We hear about Baal or the Baals all the time. Uh, Baal is is sort of a generic term for the gods of the Canaanites and the the pagans. Uh, But at one time, Baal was separated as his own god before it became just the generic term for god. So you have Baal, who has as his wife or consort Ashtoreth. And then Dagon, who is the god of the Philistines, is the dad of Baal. So you have the Dagon, whose son is Baal, who's married to the goddess of love. Uh, So we've heard some of these already, Ashtoreth and Baal elsewhere in Judges. These are the gods that the Israelites would end up worshiping themselves. And so here we have Samson going back to his hometown ostensibly falling in love with one of the occupier's women. Uh, He's wanting to marry the daughter of the enemy. 
And of course, this is all also in violation of God's desire that the Israelites not mingle with the nations around them because God simply doesn't want them to follow after the false gods. We are told this, they are told this in the Exodus. Exodus 34, 12 and following says, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest, skipping a little bit, you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore with their gods and make your sons or after their gods. So the one true God is pretty serious. Don't be going and making covenants with the inhabitants. Don't be going and marrying in to these nations that are falling after false gods. And this certainly would apply to the Philistines who have, as enemies of Israel, come in and are uh, constantly trying to take over the land God has given to them. And here we have Samson, uh, Samson seemingly wanting to do all of those things. You know, he wants to make this agreement for marriage, which is a little bit like a covenant, right? He wants to marry this woman who's a woman of the enemy. And while he doesn't explicitly want to worship their gods, there's always that danger. So it kind of makes sense when his dad and his mom object. They say pretty, pretty clearly, right? Isn't there a woman among the Israelites? They use the phrase among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people. Um, obviously, they're not talking about super close familial relations. It just means uh, people within the, the tribes of the Israelites. Isn't there people that you can marry that would be a blessing to God rather than going and taking a wife from the, and they call them the uncircumcised Philistines? It's an interesting, I guess we're frankly kind of slur against the Philistines. There were a lot of different tribes and nations that practiced circumcision. Uh, circumcision for the Israelites, of course, though, were related to the covenant. The Philistines did not practice circumcision. Uh, but he has a point, though, right? If you had been in Manoah's shoes as Samson's dad and his mom, knowing that he had been set apart from the Lord, and now here it just seems like he's going off track already, wouldn't you have objected? <laughs> I think I would have. And Samson's response really is not very convincing. I mean, he doesn't explain to them why. He doesn't even say that, well, I, you know, I don't worry. I, I won't fall after their gods. He says, quote, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. This is a Hebrew phrase that basically says she pleases me. So just get her. She pleases me. You know, we have the commandment, honor your father and your mother, and here we have Samson essentially disobeying that commandment, disobeying God's will passed down through the, from the Exodus, and his reasoning is because I think she looks pretty good. <laughs> I mean, we actually don't know in what way he she pleased him, uh, but we get the indication that it's probably just her physical appearance. I mean, he's only seen her. We have no indication that he's talked to her. That he knows her beyond just having seen her walking around the village. And here he is essentially breaking a commandment, disobeying his parents, all of these things uh, for a gal that he's just seen. So 
anyway, the next verse ends up being a surprise for us, though. And the whole narrative gets, I guess, this this uh, new light shined upon it. Verse 4 reads, His father and his mother did not know that it was from Yahweh, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So suddenly, as we're going through this text and we're like, wait a minute, you know, here's Samson. He's going off track. He's disobeying God. He's marrying into a, a culture that's going to lead him to worship false gods. And we're just all so disappointed in this judge. He's just off the tracks before he even starts. Suddenly we're told that this was from Yahweh. Actually, more specifically, it says it was from Yahweh. The question is, what is the it? You know, what is Samson's motivation? We heard him say to his dad, she pleases me. I mean, what? He likes how she looks? Like, what, so what other reason do you need to get married? <laughs> no. So it appears that Samson's motivation really is one of lust, or I guess to be nice about it, at least great attraction. So when we read in verse 4 that it's actually Yahweh behind the scenes, the scriptures say, it was from the Lord. Now my question becomes, what was from the Lord? The whole situation, right? Him seeing this woman and God's sort of making this happen. Was Samson's desire to want to take this woman as his wife from the Lord? I mean, but then that would almost be like saying Yahweh is giving him this lust or this feeling to make this happen. But it's so contrary to what God has wanted them to do. And I don't know that what it is is clear. But what is clear is that God is going to use this situation as an opportunity against the Philistines. God is using it. God is wanting an opportunity to basically attack the Philistines because they're ruling over his people Israel. And he's going to use Samson to do it. So does Samson understand that all of this is by God's direction, or is he just simply moving as he feels, and the Lord is using his own sinful inclinations for the good of the people? Honestly, that's the way I lean. I, I don't interpret this as you know God giving Samson this sinful desire to go and marry a woman against his parents' wishes, against God's wishes, and according to reasons that probably are very carnal. But since this is happening, God behind the scenes is saying, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to attack the Philistines. Well, I don't know that we, I don't know that we really know. Like I said earlier, he's physically strong, but he's fairly weak in character and restraint. Now, something should be said about marriages during this time. Marriages were very much just transactional transactions between families. So when we see him going to his parents instead of this young lady, right? He doesn't even say hi to her. He just goes straight home and says, hey, I found this lady. You need to go and get her for me. Culturally, that's, you know, it's not something we would be on board with. But for them, you know, it wouldn't be necessary for Samson to go woo this woman. It wasn't culturally appropriate that he would go and 
take her flowers, take her out on a date, try to win her affection. And then what? They eventually fall in love and he asks her to marry him. Sort of the stereotypical uh, Western love story. That's just simply not how things work during this time. Marriages were much more like business transactions. And so what happens next gives us a little insight into the fact that he hasn't even officially met this woman. And yet here we have mom and dad and they're going to head down to Timnah and they're going to make all the final arrangements to close the deal, so to speak, on this marriage transaction. Let's hear from verses five, six, and seven. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So here we have mom, dad, and Sam. They're heading down to Timnah to make the various arrangements for this marriage. But but we have this little interlude, and this interlude gives us insight into the, I guess, the nature of the power that God has given Samson. As the story just kind of goes on, normally they're going down to Timnah. Suddenly the author says, behold, Hanay, right? A young lion jumps out at him. Followed immediately by us being told that in response, the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. Now, this this idea, this phrase, this concept of the spirit of Yahweh coming upon one of the judges is generally reserved for when God is getting ready to empower the deliverer to accomplish the deliverance, right? In this case, I suppose there is a deliverance going on, a rescue. In this case, he's going to rescue himself by God's power from this charging lion. And the writer of Judges makes sure that we know that he had no weapon and nothing in his hands. And then we're told very graphically, viscerally, I might add, that he tore the lion into pieces. To be more accurate, it says that he tore the lion into pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, I don't know how often you out there are tearing young goats, but both of them seem pretty hard to do to me. So I thought about this and I did a little digging. I'm like, what does it mean that he's tearing a young goat? I might tear a young goat if I order goat, like at an Indian restaurant, but we're getting this idea that as easy as it is to tear a young goat, he tears this lion. Well, I'm not much of a hunter myself, mostly because I don't like the taste of wild game, and I'm not really going to go out and hunt something if I don't want to eat it. I did do a little pheasant hunting with a friend of mine out in South Dakota many years back, but again, I'm not really a hunter. But I did grow up down south where there are plenty of hunters, deer hunters, including my uncle, and I can still remember deer being hung up behind his house to be processed and what that looked like. And then I even remember as a pastor at my first call, whenever hunting season would come around, it was like it was like a a statewide holiday here in Minnesota. And even the confirmands would miss confirmation if 
the hunting season fell on that. And so they were otherwise very faithful. So I was pretty tolerant with the, with the week or two that people would go out hunting. But then I told the confirmands, I said, well, listen, now, if you're going out hunting, you're going to miss confirmation because of hunting. You need to bring me back pictures of you out hunting, you know, mostly just joking around. So I would have these 13, 14 year old girls and boys come to me with pictures of them field dressing deers out in the woods. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's just sort of a, a strange sight. Well, as I read into this, that's kind of the the image that you're being given here. What we're being told is that in the same way that these uh, Near Easterners would rend a young goat by pulling it hat in half by the hind legs as they process it. Right. Samson did this not to a already killed goat, but to a well alive charging, roaring, young, strong lion. He just grabs a hold of him, and now you can imagine him grabbing his back legs or even his front legs, and he just rends him in two. Pretty graphic, I know, but that amazing act of strength sets the tone for how Samson is going to pretty much handle all things from now on. And what's interesting about this text then is after he does this amazing feat of strength, and we're not given any indication that uh, his parents really know about the spirit stirring in him. We're not giving any indication he's done feats of strength that they know about, although it, he may have. We we aren't told. But he just saved himself from this lion, and he says he chooses not to tell them. He doesn't tell them. Why doesn't he tell them? Well, we're not told that ourselves. You know, um, we can speculate maybe – Maybe he thought that he had violated his lifelong Nazarite vow by touching a dead body, a dead carcass. But I don't suppose that's it because Numbers chapter 6, where we get the guidelines for what a Nazarite vow is, it's pretty clear that the only dead body one cannot touch as a Nazarite is a human one. So still, for whatever reason, he doesn't share what happens with mom and dad. Uh, which I guess gives us a little insight also that mom and dad aren't with him when this happens. But it, it stands to reason that his concern is about uncleanliness, ceremonial uncleanliness perhaps, right? Leviticus, we get some of that. Still, we're not fully told. And the section ends with him finally getting there. He finds his wife-to-be, and he gets to talk with her. <laughs> and this is the first time that he's actually talked with her. Assume, assume, or we assume, pardon me, that, you know, dad's down there to talk to her dad and maybe mom's there to meet the mom and the families are getting together and they're going to arrange some business-like transaction by which uh, this woman's dad will then give his blessing and his daughter into marriage to Samson. Uh, but we're told that uh, she was right in Samson's eyes for a second time. So it seems that he fancies her. Uh, perhaps her personality was as beautiful as her physical appearance because, again, it appears that he likes her even after he gets to talk with her. So that's that's good news. And the deal is done, right? This part ends with the deal being done. There will be a betrothal period, and uh, he'll come back, and he'll get her, and they will marry. I think that's a pretty good place to stop while we take just a few minutes for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back from these messages, I'm going to keep going through Judges chapter 14. See you on the other side. 
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And it's just you folks and me this morning as we study Samson's betrothal and marriage in Judges chapter 14. Before we get back to the scriptures, though, I do want to say, and I really mean it, thank you for gathering around God's Word with me this morning. Remember, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook and ask me anything you like or just say hello. And if you like Thy Strong Word, why not share it with others who might enjoy it too? The program airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at KFUO.org. You can listen to it on the KFUO app, which can be found in any of the app stores. Or you can subscribe to the program using your favorite podcasting platform. I appreciate that you've chosen to grow in your faith with me and usually my guests, but not today, every weekday. So just thank you because you're an important part of the show. Now, before the break, we were with Samson and mom and dad as they head into Timnah to arrange his marriage to this Philistinian young lady. Along the way, Samson easily dispatches an attacking lion, but curiously keeps this secret from his parents. Well, it looks like everything is working out with the marriage arrangements because now the betrothal period begins. We come now to verses 8 and 9. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Okay, so now the days of betrothal are over, and he's heading back to collect his bride. And on the way, he spies that lion that he had slaughtered, the one with his bare hands. And to his surprise, he sees inside the lion, not the putrefied remains, but a bunch of bees, and some delicious honey. I mean, who can turn down free lion carcass honey, right? (laughs) Well, I guess it should be noted that because of the uh, arid climate, it is possible, and they've seen this with other animals like deceased camels and such, where because of the wind and the dryness and the heat, that they actually sort of almost petrify very quickly without the decay that you would expect. So maybe just like a tree trunk, bees have come upon this lion and they've made some honey inside. And here he sees this honey and honey's probably pretty rare. And so he he scoops some up. He collects quite a bit. And who could blame him? He eats some on his way and he shares some with his parents. But then curiously, and he just he doesn't tell them where it come from. 
And so the natural question again is why? Why all the secrecy, Samson? I mean, is it just that he is the type of man that keeps his own counsel or or is there something that he doesn't want them to know about? Again, we might suspect his Nazarite vow again, right? So maybe honey isn't something he's supposed to eat. But that doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. It's not a fruit of the vine. It's not alcoholic. Um, it's not likely that it was the honey, even if he would have mistakenly thought that he couldn't eat honey because, well, he shares some with his parents. So I don't think that he is in believing that the honey has anything to do with his Nazarite vow. The best explanation, which again, standing up to scrutiny isn't perfect, but the best explanation is that Samson once again felt that coming in contact with this dead body, even though it wasn't human, made him unclean. We do read in Leviticus chapter 11 that coming into contact with even a dead animal would make a person ceremonially unclean uh, until the evening, except for a priest who's doing the sacrifices, of course. But I don't know, that still doesn't really fit well here because it's really just until the evening and it doesn't have anything to do with the Nazarite vow. So once again, it's perhaps just a misunderstanding by Samson, or perhaps he's just wanting to be extra careful. Or, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't want to tell them that the honey they're eating came out of a, a lion carcass. I, I don't know. Hey, if you know, feel free to write me. Let me know. But what we have here is this just interesting situation where the lion comes back into the story. We get this added element, which is obviously going to come in handy later for those of you who already know the story. But he's going down to collect his wife. He's really going down for the wedding. Let's hear verses 10 and 11. Now his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, so the young men, for, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Well, that's pretty straightforward so far. Dad's going down, uh, we assume mom's with them, uh, to arrange the final preparations with probably the dad of the bride uh, and the bride-to-be. And Samson then, as the custom goes, it tells us, throws a feast for the people. Now, in this culture, the husband-to-be, the groom, is responsible for the wedding feast, but the wedding feast takes place in the bride's home. This would have been a Philistine custom, not an Israelite custom. So I think you could imagine the fact that not only is he marrying a Philistine woman, which is troublesome to his parents, probably his other relatives, he's now also doing it with a Philistine wedding ceremony. So I can't imagine that his parents are very thrilled. I suspect there are a lot of you out there listening who maybe have sat through the weddings of, of your children or maybe relatives where you just sort of sat there and go, oh, you know, this isn't a good Lutheran wedding or whatever the case may be. Maybe you can empathize with his parents at that point. But regardless, he is throwing this feast as is the custom of the Philistines. And it's down there in her dad's house. And then we're told that as soon as he's come around, the people saw him. They, they bring him 30 companions to be with him. Now, these companions, it doesn't say if they were all men or all female or a mixture of the two. Uh, I don't know. I guess when I first read it, 
what came to my mind was the idea that he has these uh, 30 men come and they're like, oh, poor Samson. He's from the Israelites. He doesn't have a, a bachelor party. Let's go round up 30 of the boys to go hang out with him. Um, I don't know. Maybe that is exactly what's going on, like a reverse bachelor party. He's he's throwing the feast and they're going to supply the friends. I don't know. But what we do learn is that part of this custom is that the uh, the feast will last a week. And that's not completely uncommon either. So in any case, we have this feast going on and we have the, the people there. And the story continues with verses 12 through 14. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Okay, so, <laughs> so we have him throwing this feast as is the custom for the young men. And now we have 30 friends of, in Timnah at the marriage feast. Uh, you know, these are children of the bride chamber, as we might read in Matthew 9. Uh, and, and Samson hadn't brought any friends with him at all. So it's a very strange situation anyway. Uh, but then we have at the wedding feast, Samson says, I'm going to give you a riddle. Now, I should say off the bat that there's really nothing spiritual or significant about this particular riddle. I don't believe that there's anything for us to read into it, so to speak. What we have here is the host of a party, a host of a feast, entertaining his guests. It's actually a pretty common custom. Uh, the Greeks would do this for sure. Uh, the, you know, and the guests then consented to the proposal that he gives them, so then it becomes kind of a wager. So I, I don't think that jokes and gambling are going to be completely out of place at a party. There's, there's nothing here for us to say, you know, what's the real meaning? No, he's just entertaining them. So as far as entertaining them, though, goes, maybe I should say he's entertaining himself because, all right, let's face it. So far as riddles are concerned, this one's not great. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's something in the original Hebrew that nuances it in such a way that that as a native Hebrew speaker, I don't get. But I think what we have here, which is pretty clear, is an impossible riddle, right? The, the best riddles, one can figure them out after a while. But this is impossible. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. There's nothing in the experience of the guests that would give them any indication that they could figure this out, that they, that they would have any ability to figure this out. And we also get a little insight into why all the secrecy, not because he had planned from the beginning to tell this riddle. I don't know. Maybe he started coming up with it early on. I don't believe that because he didn't tell them the first time either. But we, are, we know about the secrecy regardless of what Samson's reasons are. 
so that we know that there's no way for anybody but Samson to know the answer. So even his parents don't know because, for whatever reason, he kept it secret from them. Now, we know, right? We, the readers, know because we've been traveling with Samson this whole time. So we know what's happened. The eater, of course, is the lion, a carnivore, right? The eater. And lions are strong. And something to eat, you could eat honey, and of course, honey sweet. So, it, I mean, again, not the greatest riddle in the world there, Samson. But I think that Samson's entertaining himself in the sense that he knows that there's no way they can get this. And we're told as much because in three days into the seven-day feast, they could not solve the riddle. Well, there's only three or four days left to go, four, if you assume that he told them at the very beginning. So... Verse 15 comes along. And you know what? Verse 15, I haven't read it yet, but it shows us that it's not only Samson who's prone to overreacting here. Uh, So we have these people at the party, and they are frustrated with their inability to answer Samson's riddle. Maybe beyond frustration is they feel duped. They've been tricked. This isn't an ordinary riddle. This is an impossible riddle. And basically, he's just wanting to uh, get 30 linen garments from them and 30 changes of clothes. Which begs the question, by the way, does each person at the party have to give Samson 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes? Uh, You know, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not great at math. Some of you guys have already math. Oh, 900, of course. So 900, that would be 900 linen garments and 900 changes of clothes. Uh, or is it all of them together would have to give one garment and one change? And then if he won, he only has to, I guess he has to give each of them. Or You know, I don't know. That's just a question. I don't know. If I had a guest, I would ask them. But I don't. So if you know, send me a message. But here's verse 15. This is the overreaction that we see not just from Samson, but also from these people. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Okay, so clearly they are not wanting to pay up, especially because of an impossible riddle. And they accuse her of inviting them to the wedding feast, essentially just to rob them. And so they say, give us the answer or we'll burn your family's house to the ground. Uh, By the way, the construction of that, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. I don't think you should read that as lest we burn you and also burn your father's house with fire. I think he's just talking about you and your father's house. That's connected. So I don't believe they're threatening to murder her, but rather just destroy their house, which again is still talk about things escalating quickly. It demonstrates quite the depravity amongst the Philistines. Over this, they would rather damage the property, the livelihood really of one of their own before they would give in to well, a foreigner's impossible riddle. I'm, I'm sure they feel cheated. Well, the story continues with verses 16 through 18. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and have not told me what it is. And he said to her, 
Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and I should tell you. And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. So his new bride is naturally upset. We're already three days into the feast, and she weeps every day until the feast is over. Some critics of the Bible will say, oh, look at the description. This, this, I'm sorry. The, uh, the, uh, look at the, uh, the, the problem here in the text. Uh, she wept before him the seven days of the feast. Uh, that doesn't make sense because it would have been third day. Well, it just means, folks, that she, she wept all the rest of the days of the feast. But then she plays on his emotions, doesn't she, right, to try to get the answer to the riddle out of him. I mean, I guess the first question that popped in my head is, why doesn't she just tell him about the threats? Why doesn't she just say, listen, you've posed this impossible riddle to my people, and now they feel like they've been cheated. They are angry. They are going to burn me and my dad's house to the ground. Um, surely he would have defended her honor and defended her family. I mean, that's, that's the thought process I have. Or at the very least, maybe that should have been the thought process she had. I, I don't know. I, I do think it's very not very clear why she takes the approach that she does, but I do suspect that part of it is that even as little as she knows her new husband, she's only known him for a little while, she does know of his strength. She knows of his willingness to use it. Perhaps maybe she can just sense in his personality. I, I, again, I don't know. But the reason that she gets the uh, answer secretly is hidden to us. But maybe, maybe she does it just so that it appears that the men of the town guessed it. And so Samson wouldn't get mad. He wouldn't retaliate. Again, who knows? It's not, sometimes we just aren't told. But we know what happens next. Interestingly enough, Samson does give in. He gives in because she is pressing him hard. Imagine that you throw this beautiful feast, seven-day feast, three days in, the people still haven't guessed your dumb little riddle, and now your wife, your bride, is just constantly moaning and crying about the riddle. Uh, Samson gives in. I mean, what man wouldn't? And he gives her the answer, I guess generously, just before the deadline to solve the riddle is up. I suspect, but don't know, but I suspect that Samson knows what's going to happen next. He has a guess. Let's look at verse 18. 18 says, And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Okay, we'll stop there. Samson knows immediately what's happened, obviously, and his response, <laughs> I have to say, okay, so the idiom he uses is not one that I would recommend using today. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, uh, it is not meant to be as insulting as it sounds in our modern ears. He is not calling his new bride a heifer, although I'm sure he's pretty upset with her. It's simply a proverb. It's, it's a proverb that means if, 
if you hadn't had have hadn't intimidated my wife, if you hadn't threatened, coerced my wife, then you would have never known. Never would you have figured out my riddle. Because again, it was impossible. At the same time, although I don't think it's indicated by his idiom use here, um, he he's got to be upset. I mean, he finally tells her the riddle. And he doesn't know until they come on that same day, but she immediately betrayed it to her countrymen. So on the seventh day, the sun goes down, and there's just sort of a, okay, by the way, we figured it out suddenly at the last hour. What's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And he then uses this proverb, if if ye had not plowed with my heifer, right? So So he gets upset. Here's where the story, I think, takes um, a fascinating turn, and it's a surprise, too. I think most modern people would say they cheated. They cheated. They, they got the answer by cheating. But one thing I highlighted as I was reading it, I highlighted it to myself, is that when he gives them the riddle, back in verse 12, he says, And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you, if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 blah, blah, blah. So find it out. There's a little caveat there that I think, and maybe I'm just being a little legalistic about it, but I think it gets them off the hook for cheating because it says, if you can find it out, he didn't give any caveat that they had to guess it or they had to come up with it on their own. And to their credit, they found it out. Uh, by threatening to burn down his wife's dad's house, they found it out, but they found it out. So you know what, Samson, he's nothing if not a man of his word. What we find out in the very last verses of the chapter, verses 19 and 20, is that he keeps his promises. Let's hear them. Verse 19 and 20. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So now we have some amazing irony. We have Samson demonstrating his feats of strength. We have Samson in an unexpected and ironic way keeping his promise. By the way, we also have the answer I just realized to my uh, off-the-cuff question at the beginning of the show when I said, um, does each man have to give 30 garments and he would end up with 900? Uh, The answer is no. Evidently, each man would have to give one garment uh, because there were 30 guests and he would receive the 30 or he would have to give 30 one to each of them, which I guess makes the riddle fairer as now that I think about it. And so here he keeps his promise, right? So his promise was 30 garments. All right, I can get you 30 garments. So he goes down and he kills 30 men, takes each of those men's garments and their spoils and gives them to the men who had told the riddle. There's where the irony comes in. You know, they thought they had won. They thought they had bested Samson. They had even used threats against their own people to get it. And in the end, 
they did get the spoils, but the spoils came from their own men. So the question is, is this carnal revenge? Is this Samson being clever, murdering people just to sort of fulfill his edge of a bet that he stacked against them in the first place? And, well, as much as we might want to think that, the answer is no. Because verse 19 tells us the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. This is the Lord's judging work. We now know, at least in this instance, why we call them judges. God had used this marriage with Samson and this Philistine woman to have an opportunity to judge and exercise his punishment against the Philistines who were oppressing God's people. So that's what happens. At the same time, Samson's wife, whom we know that God is not pleased with them marrying these foreigners because of the temptation to fall after their gods, well, there's a, something that happens there too. Samson's wife was given to his best man. And remember, his best man wasn't his buddy. It was just one of the men that was there from the town. So she now is essentially given to marrying, taken away from Samson, and marrying uh, one of her own people. So Samson is, at the end of this chapter anyway, uh, victorious against the Philistines, uh, kept his promise in terms of the wager, but also now wifeless. Wow, that's where we're going to end it. (laughs) Tomorrow, we're going to get a little bit more closure and see what happens next. But again, we're going to have to wait for that until tomorrow. The narrative does continue, though, because he's going to head down to visit his wife after some time. In fact, he's going to wait to the harvest. And, And much to her father's surprise, because as the last chapter ended, she's already been given away to somebody else. Well, in this chapter, we're going to get more feats from Samson this time, slighted by the fact that his wife has now been paired off with another man. He reacts, I would say, as any heartbroken and spurned husband might react. He catches 300 foxes, ties them together in pairs by their tails with a torch in between them, and lets the foxes run through the grain fields and orchards of the Philistines, destroying their food supply. Okay, maybe that's just how Samson would react. (laughs) This seemingly is just uh, really just to define the phrase that escalated quickly, because then we also witness him slaughtering a thousand men with just the jawbone of a donkey. So Yahweh's judgment against the Philistines will continue with the judge Samson. There's a lot to cover. Don't miss it. Until next time, when I will have a guest tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.